excited about uh, the word this morning, and uh, we're going to need some prayer. Just grateful um, for God to reveal himself to us in his word, and this is one of those revelations in the word of God that is, uh, that is a good truth, it is a hard truth, and it is a truth that's important, and it's a truth that's been neglected because it's hard. Um, so let's pray as we walk through the word of God this morning. God, I just pray as we open your word to Romans chapter 11, that you would illuminate that, that thing you do when you open our hearts and the word makes sense to us. And it's that thing that only you can do. I pray that this morning you would bring about great humility in an age where we have made ourselves the most important thing. We see in your word that it's about you. In an age where we have made ourselves the thing to be talked about, we see in your scriptures that it's about you. That you are the center. You are the reason. You are sovereign. And God, we find great hope in a sovereign God this morning. Pray that you would speak through me somehow, that your word would be clear as I speak this morning. Most of all, God, I pray that you would change our hearts and draw us close to you. Build into our lives foundational truths that come from you. It should change everything about who we are and how we live. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I just want to take note of the fact that as we spoke about this in Romans chapter 9, Mike was gone. And as we speak about it in Romans chapter 11, he is preaching at Grace in Rochester. Just kidding. <laughs> I, love, I love him and pray for Mike this morning as he's away at Grace, and I'm only jesting that he has left me to talk about this because I'm excited to talk about it um, with you. And I, I hope this morning that as we sit here together, we would have open hearts and open minds to what God would speak to us. Despite how we've grown and learned, some of us, all of us, as we read this passage, need to recognize something. In the same way that a fish doesn't really recognize the fact that it lives in water because it just always has. Many of us have a particular way of thinking about things post-modernity, in this modern age, post-enlightenment. We have a particular way, system by which we think about things that maybe we don't even recognize. And one of the things we venture to do here is we preach expository messages, as we walk through the Word of God in exposition, not topically, is the goal of that is for us to come to the Word and not bring our thoughts to the Word, but let the Word of God speak to us and change us that we would change to it. Does that make sense? So let's read a glorious truth this morning from the Word of God. In Romans chapter 11, I ask then, 
Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself. Let me say that again. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare, and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen. You know, there are truths that we are, it is better for us not to know. You know, not all things are good for us to know. Isn't that true? And so God has not revealed them to us. And there's also some things that are good for us to know, even if we can't explain them fully. Amen? I mean, we see this in the Word of God. We see in Acts that it's not for you to know the time or the season that's, uh, that's fixed. Um, God, God fixes it with his own authority. You know, It would be very dangerous for me personally to know the future, right? This would not be good. Uh, I wouldn't handle it well as a human being. You know, Psalms 31 says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The, the reality about God is there are some things, some truths about him that are out of our reach. Is that not true? You know, I say to my kids all the time when we talk about truths, not as a cop-out, because as we see things rise from the word of God, we, we explain and we, we read and we study and God has revealed some things to us. But there are moments where there are truths that are out of our reach. And I've often said to my children in those moments, if we understood everything about this truth or everything about God and we could grasp it, we would then be bigger than him, right? And we would be God. But he is in many ways, so many ways, so far beyond us. You know, so there's truths that we don't know. But there are truths that we know in part. There are some truths that we see, as, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, in a mere dimly. 
And, and, and there will come a day in his presence where we'll know in full, but we now know in part. And there are mysteries to the gospel that we see partially. And, and we see partially some of these truths, and we also don't always completely know the benefit of them for us to the full degree that it does benefit us and encourage us and guide us and strengthen us. Does that make sense? I mean, this is true with our children, is it not? I mean, there are things that we teach our children that they know uh, and we teach them that they need to know, that they need to understand, and they don't totally grasp why, right? I mean, how many times has your kid, for those of parents here, come home and said, why do I have to learn math, right? It's, actually, I still don't grasp why. Um, I'm terrible at math. That's why I went to law school. Um, but, but there's things we teach our kids that they don't fully know the benefit of, right? Keep your elbows off the table. You know, stop slouching and, and use your manners. And, and we teach table manners. And our kids are thinking to themselves, well, you know, what, what in the world do I need table? We're just home. It's just us. But, but what a parent understands is that later on, what do you, parent, what do you I know I am, as a parent picturing, later on my child in a job interview or out to lunch with a business partner, and they just, they got food all over their face and their elbows around, the, and they don't understand social graces that are going to help guide them through, through the world. They don't totally grasp that yet, but we teach it to them anyway, right? Yes? Some of you? All right. It's not just me? I mean, my kids get done eating, and you can look around and just see where they have been. There's some truths we teach our kids, right? There's some things they don't fully grasp the reasons why, but it's important. The sun is standing still. They take that for, for, uh, for your word. They take your word on that, that the earth is a ball. The earth is round. You know, the bag of rat poison will kill you. Don't eat it, right? There's, there's things that we teach our kids that they may not grasp the significance of completely when we teach it to them, but it's important that they know it. And if you think about the difference between you as a parent and your child, can you imagine the difference between us and God and the significance of truths and who he is and how he works and what he does, the significance of those truths and how far they are from us and how dimly we really recognize the significance or the benefit of what God does and how he does it and why he does it as he's revealed it to us in scripture. Can you imagine? And so this is with the doctrine of election. We see very clearly, as plain as it gets in scripture, in, in Romans chapter 11, this, what I would say, beautiful doctrine of election. And we don't know all the significance of it, but I venture this morning as we approach the word of God to see the incredible benefit of this truth as we build into our lives something that should be foundational pillars that hold up our reality as a Christian. And it is a truth and a foundational pillar that should all hold up foundationally our reality as a Christian that has been neglected or cast aside or ignored because it's difficult. And we're not going to do that here this morning. It's important that we grasp it. Amen? So what's the main point of this passage? What do we see from Paul in this passage? We see it in the first sentence in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the answer is, by no means. 
So remember, we've been walking through this argument as Paul is systematically making it from the end of chapter 8, mostly through all of 9, 10, and 11. So far, Paul is making one argument. He's, he's, he's laying out reasons for why God has not rejected his people. And to Paul, this is very significant. To Paul, we see this is a very big moment. What Paul is facing, the reality of what Paul is facing, is that the people of Israel, on almost a mass scale in this moment in history, are rejecting the Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. And Paul is is making this this argument. He's, He's raising these questions and then answering them because it's of great significance to him. And so what he's saying is, is, you know, and he says it earlier in chapter nine, is God not been true to his word? Of course he's been true to his word. Has God's word failed? Of course God's word has not failed in this, in that Israel's rejecting Christ. And now in Romans chapter 11, he's saying, um, has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer to that is, by no means. God has not rejected his people. And I'm going to tell you why. And the first thing Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 is, God hasn't rejected the people of Israel because I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm the people of Israel. I'm from the very tribe of Benjamin. And I believe God has come, and you know the story of Paul in the book of Acts, and, and moved into Paul's life and opened his eyes, and the scales dropped, and his heart opened, and he received Christ. And Paul's saying, First, my first argument is, is there are Jews who believe. God has not rejected his people because I believe, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Number two, Paul says, Paul says God foreknew his people, and he's already talked about this in chapter 9. God has known. He has foreknowledge, and he knows who his people are, and he knows who in, in eternity he has already chosen. And we see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that God, before the foundation of the world, in eternity has chosen his elect, and that's in the counsel of God. And then he goes on to number three, and he makes a comparison from the day of Elijah. And what does he say? Let's let's read it together. Starting in verse two, God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknow. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. This is Elijah. I alone am left, and they seek my life, but... What is God's reply to him? Listen to God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul continues an argument. And he says, listen. God chose a remnant. God chose a remnant in Elijah's day, and he has chosen a remnant today. And, and he begins to make this connection between Elijah, uh, Elijah's day and now. And what is this connection? You see, in Elijah's day, there's this great apostasy. Many have fallen away from the faith. They're worshiping Baal. They're killing off the prophets. They're not worshiping God to the point that Elijah's like feels like he's alone. He's like, God, I'm, I'm the only one left. Everyone else has walked away. They've killed your prophets. They're worshiping Baal. And God replies to him and says, oh, no, I have chosen by grace a remnant. I have chosen a people. I have preserved a people, not just their lives in that they're alive, because that wouldn't answer the question that Paul's asking. But he's chosen a people that have not bowed their knee to Baal, who believe. And and there is a remnant in that day, and there is also a remnant today. And you see that language. He says, I have kept 
for myself 7,000. And he's saying there is the 7,000 God has kept for himself in Elijah's day. And in comparison, there is a remnant today that's chosen by grace. That's the link between Elijah, Elijah's day and Paul's day. What's Paul's argument? God has not rejected his people because there is a people left who are chosen by the sovereign grace of God. He's kept a remnant. The literal words chosen by grace are according to the election of grace. God has chosen a people. That's exactly the words that are used in the scripture. This chosen remnant in Elijah's day means God's chosen a faithful remnant in Paul's day. And God has not forsaken his people. That's Paul's argument. God's sovereign grace has kept a remnant. Just like in Elijah's day, by the sovereign chosen grace of God, there is a remnant in my day. And that is proof that God has not rejected his people. What an amazing truth that Paul's laying out for people who would be asking this question. How is it that God reveals himself, who he is, to Moses and in the Exodus and, and keeps for himself a people and brings them into the promised land and takes them through uh, Old Testament history into the prophets and into the judges and into the kings. And, and, and now Jesus has come in fulfillment of the law and in fulfillment of all of those promises. And God has given these amazing promises in Romans chapter 8. And now has he rejected his people? No, he has not. He's not rejected his people by his grace. And, you know, Paul goes on to state some things next that we really have to walk through. Because God, God, through Paul, in this passage, doesn't just leave it at that. He goes on to underline exactly what he means by chosen by grace. He underlines it. It is not by works, but by grace. It is not by work, that anyone should boast. Does that sound familiar? God has chosen his people through his electing grace. What an amazing truth. Let's take some time this morning and get grace. Let's think through grace this morning. You see, God's given us a little insight into a truth as we wrestle as human beings how does this happen? How do some know Jesus? How does this remnant exist? What about those who don't? Does it have to do with us? Are we the deciding factor in that? Or ultimately, does that rest in God? It's a difficult thing for our brains to grasp. And maybe God could have left it alone and not revealed to us how it happens or given us a dim insight into it. But he decides to tell us because he loves us. Because he believes that it is beneficial for us to know this truth. And we see Paul lay it out here, that the grace of God, the choosing sovereign grace of God, has nothing to do with works, has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with your effort or my effort, my capability alongside of another human being in a vacuum. You know, you put two human beings, take circumstances away, 
take upbringing away, take where they were born away, what type of parents they had, what their socioeconomic status is. Take it completely away. You take two souls in a vacuum, me and, and my neighbor, as we sit next to each other in, in, the, in the scope of history, and I look at that person, I say, why do I know Jesus, and why do that, they not know Jesus? Was I smarter? Was I brighter? Did I have more wisdom? Did I have a strand of spirituality in and of myself that just gave me the ability to look to God and to, and, to, and to reach out to Christ? No. I stand before God with tears streaming down my face and say, thank you, Christ. It is God's sovereign grace that I know him. God saves a remnant of his people Thank you. That is my only response. Piper says it this way. Just think of it for a moment. What meaning could it have for election? Not the subsequent acts of salvation, but the very first act of election in eternity, as we see in Ephesians 1.4. What meaning could it have to be gracious if it depended on our decisive initiative. If God watches, even ahead of time in eternity, with foreknowledge and waits, as it were, for us to act, and then in response to that self-generated act, he chooses us, then we're not chosen by divine grace. We're chosen by a decisive human act. God would simply be a responder. We would be, we would determine his action. And grace would no longer be grace. Steve Lawson says it this way. It's not as if God looks through the annals of history and he learns from us what to do. Grace would not be grace. It's not by works. We're bringing nothing to the table here, folks. We have a gracious God, a loving God who saves. And his initiating act in eternity has nothing to do with us. Then do we believe? Then do we engage faith? Then do we embrace Christ? Of course. We must believe. We must believe. How does that happen? God's electing sovereign grace. Draw the line of mystery as to how some know Jesus and some don't, with God, not with people. The scriptures make it clear that God is at the center. Amen? God arranges all reality in his unsearchable wisdom so that many indeed experience ongoing rebellion and hardness against God, but he does this mysteriously in such a way that he's never unjust or blameworthy in what comes to pass. And we never cease to be morally accountable. We see God's work that he arranges all reality in his unsearchable wisdom. So grace is not determined at all on what I do. 
Why is this truth good for us? Why does God reveal this to us? Why should this be built into the foundational reality of our lives? Why should this be a pillar that's built into how we understand who we are and who God is in the way that we live our lives? What is the possible benefit of that? And I've asked the alternate question. What is the benefit of believing that I was the decisive decider in my salvation? Nothing. The benefit of the truth of God's sovereign grace in our lives apart from our works? Why is that a beneficial truth for us? It brings about... I would submit to you incredible humility. It brings about in us incredible humility. There is no self-righteousness that has any room in the, in the heart and in the place of a Christian who recognizes the truth of God's sovereign grace. There is no place in the heart of a Christian where you, as, as the scriptures say, could have any boast in your salvation in recognition of this incredible truth of the sovereign grace, the sovereign election of a God who loves us. I can't stand and declare that I have somehow accomplished this. I can't stand and declare that somehow I was smart enough to come up with this, that I had some incredible wisdom that someone else did not have. What I can stand and do is recognize in humility that God reached into my life and turned on the lights. You know, we see these pictures of people who are drowning and reaching and reaching and someone is reaching back or the famous painting where humanity is reaching with just a, a limp hand and you see God's hand reaching. That does not describe the sovereign grace of God in the gospel. We were not drowning. We were drowned. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You're laying at the bottom of the pool and God reached in and saved. God reached in and grabbed a hold. I'll never forget it. I just asked my father his name during the worship service. Pastor Jack was preaching at the Baldwinsville Wesleyan Church the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a, I think, eight-year-old boy, I remember it as clear as day. As he was speaking the words of the gospel, it was echoing in the chest of my little heart, and I was compelled at eight years old, to stand up in a congregation of, I would imagine, a couple hundred people before anyone else. I don't even know if he asked for an altar call. I think he might have. But I stood up, I walked past my parents, past my older brother, into the middle of the aisleway, and I walked straight down the center because somehow in my eight-year-old heart, God had reached down, turned on the lights, and illuminated his word to me, and I knew I needed Christ. And I got down on my knees at an altar in front of all those people at eight years old. And he stood there and I was alone. He came to Christ. As a teenager, I'll never forget the moments of hearing the word of God preached and recognizing that Christ was the only way, that I needed him for salvation that only he could forgive my sins. It wasn't something my parents talked about. It wasn't something people talked about around me. It was something in me that I recognized I needed. I didn't do that, folks. God did it in my heart. What an amazing God we have. Brings about incredible humility. I knew the significance of Christ somehow. 
I knew I needed him. Christ stopped being foolish and something I made fun of as a teenager. He was not something other people just talked about. He was the only means of salvation. I wonder if some of you this morning may have similar moments in your life. Maybe you've been praying for, contemplating, or searching for that. I believe God is the only one. He will move in your hearts. So Paul talks about the sovereign grace of God. It's not having anything to do with our works, not determined by what we do. And then he continues, and he writes something even harder. Let's look at it in verse 7. God is a good God, amen? As we read his scriptures, even if it's hard, he is good. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? We saw this earlier, folks, that Israel failed to obtain it as they were seeking it by the law, right? And we see in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Jesus fulfilled the law. And those who received it by faith obtained it. These Gentiles obtained it, but the Jews who were seeking it, trying to fulfill the law in their own effort, in their own works, trying to be good enough, failed to obtain it. So what then? Israel failed to obtain it, what it was seeking? The elect obtained it. We just talked about that. Chosen by grace. What happened to the rest? So if the elect obtained it, what happened to the rest? But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What a weighty truth. What a heavy truth. This is not your best life now kind of stuff, is it? This is not the things we spend our weeks looking at on YouTube or watching on Netflix. We come to the Word of God this morning to hear weighty truths, to explore the depths of the grace of God and the realities of His truths. And I know we feel the weight of that this morning. It's significant. It's big. There's a remnant chosen by God. And we see some that failed to obtain it. They stumbled under, oh, over the stumbling block of Christ in, in chapter 9, verse 32. Jesus, under, under uh, chapter 10, verse 4, is the end of the law. And we see in chapter 9, verse 3, Paul's kinsman, kinsman as his heart wrenches and cries out, they've been cut off, they've been lost, they've not obtained it. How did this happen? What did the elect obtain? What did the elect chosen by the sovereign grace of God obtain? They obtained a right standing with God through faith and justification and salvation. And there are those, the reality is that there are those that don't obtain it. There are those that don't have it. How does that happen? How, how does some receive faith and justification and salvation and others have not obtained it as they pursue to save themselves in the law? They have not obtained it. They were hardened. In, mar in modern evangelical Christianity, we do not speak this way anymore. 
We don't, do we? In modern American Christianity, we do not speak this way anymore. How would we have written this? How would we have written it? I mean, what would we have said? We would have said in, in, in chapter 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain it. What it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest refused to believe. That's what we would have wrote. And you know what? If we wrote that, the rest refused to believe, we would be right. They did refuse to believe. And we are responsible for our continued rebellion and sin and inability to believe. Paul could have wrote it that way and avoided this difficult topic of election. But he didn't. He didn't write, the elect obtained it and the rest refused to believe. That's true. He could have. He didn't. Why? Because God loves us. God loves us and is giving us insight into his sovereignty and into a truth about who he is. He wrote it this way. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Then he goes on to talk about Deuteronomy and Psalms, how God gave them a spirit of stupor and their eyes would not see, their ears would not hear. That, that it was like a, a, a table that was a snare or a trap, a stumbling block of retribution. That their eyes were darkened so that they cannot see and, and, and bend their backs forever. What does that mean? It's, it's this idea of continuing to work to achieve the law and you're never going to achieve it. We sang this morning in one of the worship songs. I was so grateful. Blessed are those whose eyes see. Blessed are those whose ears hear. How blessed are we to see. How blessed are we to hear. Who gets praise? Who gets exalted for the fact that we see? Who gets praised and who gets exalted for the fact that we hear God and God alone? Amen? Blessed are those who see. Blessed are those who hear. So what is this hardening? What is it? It's a stupor. It's eyes that are dimmed. It's ears that are dull. Not at the hands of men, but at the hand of God. Because we also see, as we read through chapter 11, that God will, God will lift the stupor at the appointed time. And I'm not going to take Ethan's thunder, but there comes a moment as we see God does bring in many from Israel. There are a moment until the Gentiles are full, until the Gentiles respond that God lifts the stupor, that God lifts the hardening, and, and many will come to Christ. There is a remnant that God will choose in his sovereign grace and love from Israel. We see in chapter 11, verse 33, at the end of this chapter, that God, how unsearchable are your ways. Amen? That this is beyond us. Read that with me. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What a great God. Amen? 
How unsearchable are his judgments. This is all done in the, in the wisdom and in the judgment and the unsearchable wisdom and ways of God. It's not up to us, ultimately. It's up to him. The scriptures reveal not us. The scriptures reveal God. It's not about us, American 2018 evangelical. It's not about you and your life and your calling and your gifting and what God wants you to do and all the cool stuff he saved you for. It's about God, amen? God loves you. God chose you for his glory. God is for God. And to the degree he is for us, as we see in the scriptures, it's because we reveal his glory, amen? And you know what in chapter 9 we realize is those who don't love him and those whose eyes are dimmed, whose ears are dull, they reveal, they reveal the glory of God as well. Is God unjust? In chapter 9, who are you, Clay? to look to the potter and ask, why did you make me this way? For I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. God is just. His ways are unsearchable. His ways are beyond us. Amen? I want to sum up the doctrine of election by quoting Piper again. I think he does it well. But I think it's important that we choose our words carefully. And that's why I'm reading this quote. Because we have to choose our words carefully as it's outlined in Scripture. This is a teaching that God chose. Before the foundation of the world, we would believe and so be undeservingly saved in spite of their sin. And who would persist in their rebellion and so deservingly perish because of their sin? In other words, the wisdom and justice and grace of God's will is always the ultimate explanation of what happens in the world. All of it. Humans are not God. We cannot originate causes out of nothing. I want to read that one more time. Unconditional election. This is a teaching that God chose before the foundation of the world who would believe and so be undeservingly saved in spite of their sin. And who would persist in their rebellion and so deservingly, those words are chosen carefully, perish because of their sin. In other words, the wisdom and justice and grace of God's will is always the ultimate explanation of what happens in the world. All of it. Humans are not God. We cannot originate causes out of nothing. I want to close with some application. First application we already talked about. This should bring about in us incredible humility. This should bring about in us incredible humility. Number two, pray. Pray with boldness for the most hardened unbeliever you know. 
Pray with boldness for that person that you think would never come to Christ. You know why? Because it's about God lifting the scales from their eyes and turning the lights on in their mind and heart. Pray with boldness. Seek the Lord. God, save them. It doesn't matter how hard they are, how rejecting of you they are, how far from you they seem to be. Because it's not about what I did or what they did or what they didn't do. It's about you. You move in the hearts of people. So we can pray with boldness for those who don't know Jesus. Pray with boldness for those who seem the most far off. And pray hard that God would move in people's hearts. Third application, we see in Romans in conjunction with Paul's argument here as he explains election to us that what? Faith, Mike preached on this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preached word of God. How will they know without a preacher? So third application, preach the gospel with boldness. Preach the gospel without fear. You could preach the gospel to the most hardened rejecter of Christ that you know and preach it without fear and with boldness and with clarity and recognize that it's God who moves in the hearts of people, not what they've done or haven't done that saves them. Preach the word of God. Historically, the doctrine of election has produced, as, as, as it's risen out of the scriptures, the most incredible preaching and evangelism and missions movements in the history of the church. It has produced, uh, from Edwards to Spurgeon to the Reformation, it has produced the massive movements of evangelism and preaching the word of God without fear, without worry, of risk. God is sovereign. God chooses by his sovereign grace as we preach the word of God and people hear it. God moves on their hearts. And so really the fourth application in our lives is, is it should be a, a total re-evaluation of how you think about your money, of how you think about risk to your own life. This has moved people to, to take their lives in, into places where, where their lives are at risk, where they go into missions, where they preach the gospel, where they give their money, where they speak into corners of the world that are dark and dangerous and difficult. Why? Because they trust that God is in charge of what happens, and in his sovereignty, he will move through the preached word in the hearts of people that are the most dangerous and most difficult to reach. This should move us. This should move us and, and readjust our value system as pertaining to our risk of life or risk of finances. What else does it do? It should cause in us incredible worship and exaltation of a sovereign God who loves us. Amen? We should just worship. As we stand here and sing these songs, I thought to myself this morning, standing right there, as we sang of the gospel, as we sang of our eyes being open, as we sang of our ears being open, as we sang of the cross of Christ, the sufficiency of his sacrifice, the payment for our sin, our hearts should rise with exaltation. Our hearts and our lives should center on his worship and the exalting of him and the joy of our life should be him. He is our treasure. He is what we get. The distractions of this world, the distractions of everything that takes our attention away from a God who loves us this much, 
A God who came all the way for us and paid the price for our sin while we were drowned, while we were dead in our sin. Our, our ability to now see it and hear it and respond to it and live into it should change the way that we worship. It should change the way that we think about things. Folks, historically, this particular truth causes Christians, and I don't have time to tell the stories of church history, but it causes Christians to not be thoughtless in their theological pursuits, but to be thoughtful as they search the scriptures. And, and the more thoughtful theologically we pursue the scriptures and who God is and how he saves us and what he's done, what, what you will see is, is good theology producing incredible doxology, meaning good understanding of the gospel and what it really says, producing in our hearts incredible worship because of who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. I know some here struggle with this. Some are in process. And that's okay. As we preach the word of God as an elder team, one of the parts of being on the elder team is we're not in process here with this. But it's okay if you're walking through these truths. I would submit to you the more you pursue the word of God and what he says about this, it will produce a joy and a worship in your heart that you have yet to know. For those who would sit and think, maybe I'm not chosen. What does the word of God say about that? Take joy. Take joy because what you should be thinking is there is no work you've done by which you would not be chosen. There's nothing you've done that can separate you from the love of God as he moves on your heart. You can't say to God, have I done too much? Have I sinned too much? Have I gone too far? Because the answer that Paul gives in this argument is because of the sovereign grace of God. The promises of Romans 8 are absolutely to be counted on. You can bank on it. Neither death, nor light, nor height, nor depth, nor anything can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because of God. Amen? God loves you, and there is nothing and God's sovereign grace that he's displayed in your life. As you recognize it, as you reveal it, as you see it, you wouldn't even be asking the question if God wasn't speaking to your heart. You can know that today. The fact that you're even asking the question means God is revealing himself to you. And you can know this, there's nothing you've done that can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because it's about God. Because he loves you, and he chose you, and he has saved you. And if that is the case, there is nothing that can take you from his hand. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes your word really offends our American sensibilities. 
Sometimes your word really crosses with our sense of who we are and what we do and what we bring to the table. Our prayer today is that we would let it. Let it adjust us. Let it bring humility to us. Let us see who you are and let it cause us to worship. Let it cause us to worship you like we've never worshiped you before. Because you are a sovereign God. And it's your sovereign grace that's chosen us. The explanation for everything that happens in this world, why everything is, lies in your unsearchable ways. Lies in your sovereignty and who you are. And while it's a paradox, not a contradiction, it's a paradox that we don't completely understand. Because we recognize that we choose you, that we, that we respond in faith, that we must believe, and that we're totally responsible when we don't believe. At the end of the day, why everything happens, the answer to everything is you. It's because of your unsearchable ways. That's what you've revealed to us. And we rest in your sovereignty this morning and worship you for who you are and recognize it's not up to us and it's not anything we've done, but it's what you've done, oh great sovereign God. Be worshiped and glorified at this church through your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said.